Okay, so we're into Ephesians 5, 1 to 7. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to read uh, just for the verse, just for context, and uh, probably go to verse 30. Now we'll go to verse 32 of chapter 4, just to lead us in. And so here's Paul saying, verse 32, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God and a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanliness and covetousness, let not it even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolatra, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one be deceived with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Therefore, comes into Paul in chapter 5, be imitators of God. Wow, there's a challenge for us. Therefore, be imitators of God. You've probably heard the expression, like father, like son. Many sons take on the characteristics of their dads. Some want to grow up like their dads, some don't. I know my father, very good father to me, was a strict dad, but he also was a dad who spoke his mind. Many a times I was with him as a boy, where he got into an argument with people. He didn't mind that if he thought he was right. In fact, I just rang him yesterday and I said to him, Dad, I think your old boss uh, was in a car accident and died at the age of 62. Uh, Dad worked for Mainland Country Foods for 20 years as a sales rep and the two brothers that owned it, one Alan McConnell, he died down in Roxburgh just on Thursday in a car accident. And my father told him he was a very, very tough man. He told me on the phone yesterday he was a hard man. He was worth $250 million, so he could do what he liked to people who he liked. And one day, Dad was at this conference with a sales rep conference, and uh, Alan said, stood up and said, look, I'm, I know I'm the owner of this, but I want any questions you have, any questions at all, stand up, and I will answer them. So my dad stood up, no one stood up, so dad stood up and says, yes, I've got a question. When's the next pay rise coming? And of course, Alan McConnell said, "Uh, sorry, we're not answering questions like that, please sit down. And so that was my father. He didn't mind actually uh, giving his opinion and asking questions. Paul here points out to a glorious picture of the father, which we are meant to imitate. And he's done it throughout throughout the book of Ephesians. And not that you have to turn to them, but in Ephesians 1, he starts off, Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual 
blessing. And Paul can go to chapter 3 and verse 14. For this reason I bow the knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth are named. In chapter 4, he looks at the Father again. For there is one God, one Father, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And so then he comes into chapter 5. Be imitators of God, looking at the Father. And so he challenges us, the church here at Ephesus, and us here today, to take on the Father's character. It's quite a heavy passage from verses 1 to 7. Uh, Paul looks, uh, doesn't hold back here, and it's a passage that is sorely needed in the church today. Paul answers how we should imitate God. I think probably in three uh, passages here in chapter 5, he looks at um, walking in love, which is mine today, walking in light, which is Philip's next week, walking in wisdom, which is Peter's, and then with Robbie finishing this part off, walking in the Spirit. So walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom, and walking in the Spirit. And that is how you will imitate the Father. I'm going to look at very quickly, because there's quite a lot in it. Um, I've broken it up like this. First, we'll look at the love of the Father. Then we'll look at the love of the Son. When we look at the love of the Son, I've broken that up into three different little titles or subjects, the power of love, the pattern of love, and then the perfume of love. That's looking at the love of the Son, love like the Son. Uh, does that mean I have to finish? or is, That's all right. That's okay, cool. Just thought that was the finish hooter. Um, and then uh, from verse 3, we look at the perversion of love, the power of love, the pattern of love, the perfume of love, and the perversion of love from verse 3 on. So we start off with love like the Father, therefore imitate God. I believe this text and why we read verse 32 of chapter 4 links to that. This is what Paul was saying. And so he says, if you want to imitate the Father, you must look at verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. We can probably say, as I looked at that passage, how do you imitate the Father whom you have never seen? And it's great when we have disciples that are willing to put their foot in it and answer that for us. In John 14, Philip had uh, a thought, the same thought as I did. Philip was with the Lord one day, and Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you how... Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So if we want to imitate the Father, we will look at the Son. And that's where verse 2 takes us straight away into, where we will look at the Son. And so that brings us to our next topic, if you like, or our next little title, Love Like the Son. And that says in verse 2, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. First of all, I've broken that up. To love like the Son, we need the power of love. To walk in love, 
when you go through Ephesians, we've gone through thus far, we'll see Paul looking how we should love. And that word love is like the word father going through Ephesians. He says in verse 1 that we've looked at already, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In verse 15 of the same chapter, Therefore I also have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us. In chapter 3, That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Verse 19, the same chapter, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In chapter 4, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And here's that theme going through, to love, to love one another, to bear one another in love. But we need the power of love to walk in love. And so we need the Holy Spirit to have that power to walk as Christ walked. I can't go to verse uh, 18 because that's Robbie's, but I do believe it's connected here. To walk in love, we need to be filled with the Spirit, to be filled to walk as Christ walked. And poor Robbie has got two verses only, so I don't want to say too much about being filled with the Spirit. But that's a struggle, isn't it? A struggle for the Christian life, to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in this love, to walk in wisdom. And so how do we do that? And I've had people come to me, and uh, being a youth group leader in my younger days, and young ones will come to me and say, hey, I'm finding this book and the Christian walk really boring, and it's really tough. So I ask the normal questions. Are you reading this book? Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, okay. Uh, how's your prayer life? Well, I don't have one. Oh, okay. Do you meditate on the things of God or anything? No, I don't. And they wonder why this book is so cold and why their relationship with him is so distant. If we're going to walk in love and the power of love that Christ walked, we must have a relationship with him and it must be close. This word must become precious to us Our prayer life must be on target, uh, praying to him daily, and also to meditate on him if we want to walk in the power of love. Then we come to the pattern of love. What is the pattern of love? It says, walk in love as Christ also loved us. Then it adds, and given himself for us. What a marvellous description of what genuine love is. Paul now takes us back, further back, to Calvary itself. And he says, don't forget what kind of love your Saviour showed you. What was it? Well, he died. It was a sacrificial love. It was a love that involves giving himself away for the good of others. And that's what we are meant to be doing, to love one another so much that we give ourselves away for the good of another. That's why Paul picks up that same theme in chapter uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians when he talks about husbands loving your wife and your wife's loving your husband. 
Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So therefore, love your wives as Christ, and so on and so on. Christ is that ultimate pattern of love. It is not merely a feeling or a feeling of being sorry for someone. It involves sacrifice and action. John writes this in John, uh, 1 John 3. Little children, we must not love with just word and speech, but with truth and action. And Jesus demonstrated his love with flesh and blood action, as Romans 5 says. Other practical ways to love through Scripture, John 14 or John 13, he says to love one another, forgiving one another, Ephesians 4, giving financially to one another, 2 Corinthians 8, spreading the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5, being patient with one another in 1 Corinthians 13, loving those who annoy you, which we looked at last week in Ephesians 4, and aiding those in need in Ephesians 4 and verse 26. To take on that pattern of Christ. As Christ walked, so we must walk. How he treated people, we must treat people. And that involves a heart change in our lives. I came across a story of Robert Faulkner, who was a preacher uh, that preached on the street. And one day he was reading the, um, uh, about the woman who came into Simon's house and fell at the Lord's feet and um, washed his feet with tears, dried them with her hair, and anointed his feet with oil. And he was telling this story on a street corner quite loudly, just reading it through, until he heard sobs and crying. And he looked up, and there was this woman, and she was disfigured. She had had smallpox, and she had lost her hair, but she had come out of this. And he asked her, why are you weeping? And she said, well, I'm worried. I heard that this man that you're talking about is coming back again. And he said, yes, he is coming back again. And she said to him, well, I hope he doesn't come back soon. And he said, why? Why would you say that? She said, because my hair is not long enough to wipe his feet. And I thought, man, what a heart changed for a woman like that. She didn't want him to come back until her hair was long enough. So if he did, and when he did, she could wipe and wash and dry his feet. Galatians sums it up, doesn't it? In Galatians uh, 2, 19 and 20, this is how we should live. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When I looked up that and I was writing it down, and I was writing it down, I thought to myself, how much do we give away? How much do you really live for Christ? Have I done enough? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the Christian walk. How much should I really give up in my life to follow him? And I went downstairs and I had a break. I'd written three pages, so I thought, that's enough. I'll go down, watch YouTube, and normally I watch it and have a look at some speakers or I watch something else. And I come across this title of the greatest sermon ever preached. And it was uh, a combination of like four preachers, and I can only remember three of them, I think. One was Ian Paisley, and he started off 
One was A.W. Tozer, and the next one was Raver, uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Well, Ian Paisley started off with a hiss and a roar, telling how the church is asleep. And it was really interesting, but it was half an hour, so I, I, I keep flicking, uh, and you hear A.W. Tozer. Yep, he's quite tough, though I've read most of his books, but I kept flicking, and I came to a story, and it just came on as he, this Leonard Ravenhill was telling the story, and I thought, hmm, this sounds good, I love stories. Thinking in the background, how much do I give away? How much do I follow Christ? Do I hold something back, or do I, yeah, have I given enough away coming up to Hamilton? And he tells a story of two Moravians. It was part of a church at the time, and, and they were known for mission work, but this was early on. And anyway, two young men in their early 20s found out that in the Atlantic Ocean there was quite a big, quite a big um, uh, island there where a man owned the whole island, and he brought in 2,000 slaves from Africa. Now, he was anti-Christian, so there was no minister, no clergyman, or no pastor allowed on this island. The gospel was not allowed there, and he owned 2,000 slaves at the time. So these two young men decided, wow, we've got to tell the gospel to these 2,000 slaves. So they sold themselves to this man. With the money they got for selling themselves, they bought a ticket to his island. And of course, the Mavarian church was kind of a wee bit worried. Had they gone too far? Had they just pushed the limit too far? As they hopped on the old sailing ship, the church was there to say goodbye. The families were there of these two young men, as I say, in their early 20s. And there was tears and they were weeping as they waved goodbye, wondering, is this the right thing that they have done? And the two men who had locked in arms, they were never seen again, by the way. Once they were sold, they were sold. Never to be seen again. One of the men in the ship, one of the young men who was going to this island, who had sold himself, yells out to the church and the family on the shore. And he yelled out this. And as I was thinking this, what, how much do I give away in the Christian life, of my life? He yelled out this. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. How much should we give away? Everything. Everything. Our life, we are meant to be, this is what I struggle with, we're meant to be crucified with Christ. When we walk away from Calvary, we're no longer our own, but we are belong to him. What would a church look like if we acted out that? Wouldn't that be awesome? These two young men acted that out. They realized they weren't their own. And glory had to go to him who had suffered so much for them. So I've thought of the power of his love, the pattern of love. And now we come to the perfume of his love. It says there just at the end of verse 2, that he was an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Rush through it. Paul here borrows two technical terms from the Jewish sacrificial vocabulary, if you like, offerings and sacrifice. Now, there are many offerings in the Old Testament. There's the uh, continual burnt offering in Exodus 29, 
There was the other burnt offering in Leviticus 1, the meal offering or the grain offering, as some say, in Leviticus 2, and then the peace offering in Leviticus 3. Then you have the sin offering, the trespass offering. You have the red heifer. You have the day of atonement, and you can go into all of them, which is very, very interesting. But this offering and this sacrifice that Christ was was a sweet-smelling aroma, which we are meant to be as well. So what would that offering, I was quite curious, what would that offering be? And though there are many different opinions, and when you look at the offering, different men, very godly men, have different ideas of what they signify. But when you come to Exodus 29, and you see the continual burnt offering there, the, the burnt offering, uh, which is the continual one, which is the bullock, is married in, if you like, with the meal offering. And both were brought together. And that was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. What do they mean? Well, most scholars would agree that the burnt offering, the bullock, everything was consumed by God on the brazen altar, except for one thing, and that was the skin of the bullock. That was given to the priests. They could have the skin, nothing else. And that would signify the death of Christ. That when you look at the bull and what they did and how they parted it and how it was burnt, they weren't allowed to touch it. They weren't allowed to eat off it. It was all God's, but only the skin for them. And most scholars would agree that really when you look at Calvary, all we can do and all we, all we, we can go, if you like, when we look at Calvary is skin deep. That's all we can go. We can scratch the surface, but no more. When you look at what Christ did, how, how could it be that he became sin? How could it be that he took the sin of the world upon himself? How is the fact that God, all-knowing and everywhere, could turn himself away from his one and only son? They were deep, deep mysteries that maybe, just maybe, when we get to heaven, we will understand a lot more. But the burnt offering was only skin deep. That's all uh, the, the death of Christ, sorry, we can only scratch the surface. It was skin deep. But when you come to the meal offering, which signifies his walk, that is different. We can relate to his walk. And of course, this passage is looking at walking in love as Christ walked in it. And what they did with the meal offering, the priests were allowed to eat off the meal offering. They could understand a lot more. They could signify with Christ's walk. And so they were allowed to eat off it. And with the meal offering, they would get it, they would go through and roast it in fire. They would then, after that, crush it so it was so smooth that they could take it in their hands and see that there was no imperfections in the meal offering. There was nothing wrong. There was, there was no roughage. There was no unevenness. There was no defects. There was no insects that had got in there. It was perfect. And then they would add the oil. And so it was with Christ's life, that when you look at Christ's life, and we have the Gospels to look at that, that there was, he was perfect. He lived a perfect life. There was no roughage. There was no unevenness. There was no defect in his life. And when God looked at that, it was a sweet-smelling aroma to him. So much so that Pilate could say three times, I find no fault in him. That was the life of Christ in the meal offering. And so it must be with us that Paul is begging us, look at his life. Look at what offering and sacrifice it was. You can have a good look. You can see. You can 
partake in his walk as you read through the scriptures. So it must be with us that we must walk as Christ walked. And in doing so, and this is what I find amazing, in doing so, our walk can be also a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Our life, if lived as Christ lived, can give God pleasure, which is amazing to me, that we can please God. We've thought about the power of his love, power of love, the pattern of love, the perfume of love, and now just quickly we'll go to the perversion of love. In verse 3, he comes from this lofty mountain down to the ground. But after talking of Christ, talking of his sacrifice, talking about being imitators with God, but in verse 3, fornication and uncleanliness and covetousness and so on must not even be named among you. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, uh, which are not fitting, but rather give thanks. Fornication, the Greek word there, uh, it's, well, basically in English, fornication means sex outside of marriage, but it's actually more than that. The Greek word pornei, which actually means sexual immorality and all impurity. Anything to do with sex outside the marriage is wrong. Paul's saying, don't, it's not even fitting amongst the saints. In other words, broadly speaking, bringing that into the 21st century, it refers to all kind of filth, covetedness, which is greed, uh, sex outside of marriage, pornography, the movies we watch, the things we listen to. Paul has a thing on this, and it must have been bad in the early church as well. Think how bad it is now. That in Col uh, Colossians 3, he, he names it as the number one thing, the warning. He puts it up there, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Stay away from these things. It's a trap, and more so now for us living in this internet age. I remember reading a book called Every Man's Battle, and when I managed the bookshop, it was a Christian book written by John Elkenburn, and he was saying that this pornography and sex outside of marriage has just gone so rampant in the, stage, uh, in the States that he wrote a book, Every Man's Battle. And I thought to myself, I don't need this book. I don't, I don't need to read this. But the title got to me, so I read it, Every Man's Battle. And I read the story of, uh, there was a youth pastor's conference in the States. They hired out a 15-story building, all for youth pastors. They did this every single year. And so it was rented out, and one of the guys who was speaking at the conference met the manager of this massive hotel. You know, there was hundreds of youth pastors in it. And he said, I guess you love these youth pastors coming here every year, you know, no parties, no drunkenness. And the manager said, yes, we love it here. It's great when you guys come, but it's not the reason what you think. The reason why we love them coming here is because every year you are here in, in, in the States with their Sky channels, the pornography channel is on, on this pastor's youth pastor's conference is the highest than any other time in the year where they buy pornography on paid preview. And the guy just couldn't believe it. There was nobody else. It was just a youth pastor's conference. But when it came to paid preview, uh, they, they made a killing. And that's, Paul is saying, it shouldn't even be named among us. 
And yet in the church today with men, it is probably one of the biggest problems uh, we face today for young men, older men, doesn't matter. And that's what they were facing in the States. In verse 4, he goes, neither filthiness, foolish talk, etc., etc. We looked at the sins of the body there and now sins of the mouth. And we went through this in James 3. Instead of corrupt speech, etc., etc., give thanks. Give thanks. Let's cultivate a heart of gratitude. Adopt our speech to giving thanks. It's a part of worship here. And then in verse 5, and I'm just quickly going down. But this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man, which he calls an idolater, which goes back to Old Testament times, which I haven't got time to look at, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And Paul gives out this massive warning. If this is what characterizes your life, Paul has condemned uh, in verses 3 and 4 here, you will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. No person whose life pattern is one of immoral uh, and pure and looked at as greed, uh, will have any part of God's kingdom because no such person belongs to him. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And therefore, and so he, start, he, he brings all this into connection in verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. What does that mean? To, be, to not have anything to do with them? To run a mile when you see a sinner? When you see your workmates, let's yeah, pull out of work because it's too crass and we cannot work there? Well, I think Corinthians 2 sums it up in verse 6 to 14. Uh, Corinthians 2, 6 and verse 14, he says, this is Paul speaking again, do not be mismatched with unbelievers for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Paul always calls Christians to be salt in society, to love and befriend those outside the faith. However, our mission does not involve participating in the sins of unbelievers. Believers. I'm going to leave it there because Sunday school is back. May we walk in love. And next week, Philip's going to take over and he's going to streamline this to walk in light. And so may we do that. Thanks. Thanks.